0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In my flaky space case life, I've overlooked a lot of things. I think we all have. We've searched for things that were directly in front of us, dug around for the phone we were holding in our hands, or struggled to find our car in a parking lot. Inanimate objects seem to have a glamour magic that lets them disappear. But an entire city? What about three cities, built in secrecy and in a hurry across the country? My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. vs. China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. In 1943, three ordinary-looking U.S. cities were constructed at record speed, but left off of all the maps. Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Richland, Washington, and Los Alamos, New Mexico, which held laboratories and sprawling industrial plants, as well as residential neighborhoods, schools, churches, and stores. The K-25 plant at Oak Ridge was the largest building in the world at the time, spanning more than 40 acres. The three cities had a combined population of more than 125,000 people and one extraordinary purpose, to create nuclear weapons as part of the Manhattan Project. Their design was driven by unique considerations, such as including buffer zones for radiation leaks or explosions. In each case, the towns had topographical features that were considered to be favorable. They were all somewhat remote. In the case of Richland and Los Alamos, very remote which offered a more secure environment. In the event of a disaster, this isolation would minimize the potential exposure for people outside of the project. The sites were also selected so that in the unlikely event a German or Japanese bomber somehow made it into American airspace, they would be unable to hit more than one target in a single bombing run. Before you begin any building project, you have to clear the site of things like trees high spots in the soil people in 1942 the government approached the families that lived near the clinch river in tennessee some of whom had farmed there for generations and effectively kicked them out telling them the land was needed for a demolition range so as to scare off any holdouts with the threat of adjacent explosions the town of oak ridge scaled up fast It was initially conceived as a town for 13,000 people, but grew to 75,000 by the end of the war, the biggest of the secret cities. The laboratories took up most of the space, but rather than constructing basic dormitories for the employees, the architects and designers settled on a suburban vision. To pull this off quickly and secretly, the architects relied on prefabricated housing, In some cases, a house might come in two halves on the back of a truck to be assembled on site. These were called alphabet houses. Designation A houses were the most modest, read tiny, while D-grade houses included things like dining rooms and bathtubs. Housing was assigned based on seniority, though allowances were sometimes made for large families. And race. This was the early 40s, after all. The secret suburbs for factories manufacturing Megadeth were segregated by design. The houses for the African-American employees were called hutments, little more than plywood frames without indoor plumbing, insulation, or even glass windows. Though interestingly, two of the first public schools in the South to be desegregated were in Oak Ridge, they had even threatened to secede from Tennessee in order to desegregate, so there's that, I guess. There were white families in the hutments as well, and all of the residents of that lower class neighborhood were under greater surveillance and stricter rules than the families living in the better housing. Married couples were sometimes forbidden to live together. By the end of the war, most of the white families had been moved out of the hutments. But many of the African-American families continued to live in these basic dwellings until the early 1950s. These towns didn't appear on any official maps. Visitors were screened by guards posted at the entrances. Anyone over the age of 12 had to carry official ID at all times. Firearms, cameras, and even binoculars were prohibited. Billboards were installed all over town to remind workers to keep their mouths closed, even though most workers knew very little about the project's true scope. For example, your job may be to watch a gauge for eight hours and flip a switch if the needle goes too high. You don't know what the gauge is measuring or what the machine is doing. All you've been told is to flip the switch when the needle hits a certain number. In Los Alamos and Richland, the entire neighborhood may have had the same mailing address. At Oak Ridge, street addresses were designed to be confusing to outsiders. Bus routes might be called X10 or K25, while dorms had simple names like M1. There were no signs on the buildings. The towns employed many forms of cipher, and even employees didn't know how to decode them all. The use of words such as atomic or uranium was taboo, lest it tip off the enemy. When the U.S. dropped the atom bomb on Hiroshima, Japan, in 1945, the city's secret was out. Many residents celebrated this turning point in the war, but not all. Mary Lowe Michael, a typist at Oak Ridge, was quoted in an exhibit on display now at the National Building Museum in D.C., the night the news broke that the bombs had been dropped, there were joyous occasions in the streets, hugging and kissing and dancing and singing that went on for hours and hours. But it bothered me to know that I, in my very small way, had participated in such a thing, and I sat in my dorm room and cried. All three cities remained part of the military-industrial complex, continuing to work on nuclear weapons during the Cold War, as well as broader scientific research. Today, Oak Ridge is heavily involved in renewable energy, minus the barbed wire fences. For most of the 20th century, if the U.S. was doing something, so was the USSR. We had closed cities to build nuclear weapons, and so did the Soviet Union. We had three. They had... LOTS. Like, a lot, a lot. Like multiple screens on the Wikipedia list. Where the U.S. began to open its closed cities after the war, the USSR was building more and more of them, and not just for nuclear weapons. These closed cities were nicknamed post boxes because they would be named for the nearest non-secret city and the end of their postcode, or simply boxes for their closed nature. During the two decades following World War II, dozens of closed cities were built around the country. Some were Nakogorari, science cities, or Akademgorodoki, academic cities, while others developed military technology and later spacecraft. The official name was Closed Administrative Territorial Formations, or and I apologize to anyone within Earshot who speaks Russian, but here we go. Zakrit, Administrativno, Territorialny, Abrazovanya, or ZATO, Zatos. The cities were largely built with slave labor from the Gulag prison camps, which at the time accounted for 23% of the non-agricultural labor force in the Soviet Union. They were guarded like gulags too, surrounded by barbed wire and guards, with no one allowed to enter or leave without official authorization. Many residents did not leave the city once between their arrival and their death. That being said, the captive residents enjoyed access to housing, food, and health care superior to that available to the average Soviet citizen. While most towns in the Soviet Union were run by local Communist Party committees, military officials oversaw the secret cities that would eventually be home to over 100,000 people. Even during construction, officials were ordered to use only trusted prisoners, meaning no Germans, POWs, hardened criminals, or political prisoners. Even living alongside Gulag prisoners, residents believed that they were making a valuable contribution to their country. Nikolai Robotnov, a resident of Chebolinsk 65, remembered, I was sure that within our barbed labyrinth I inhaled the air of freedom. Arsamos 16, known today by its original name, Tsarov, was one of the most important sites in the early development of the first Soviet atomic bomb, and roughly the Soviet equivalent of Los Alamos. Scientists, workers and their families enjoyed privileged living conditions and were sheltered from difficulties like military service and the broad economic crises. Leading researchers were paid a large salary for those times. Chelyabink 65 or Orzesk was home to a plutonium production plant similar to the American facility at Richland. Located near a collective farm in the southern Ural Mountains, Chelyabinsk 65 was more or less built from nothing, where Arzamas-16 was an existing town that had been taken over. After the basics of the city were completed, early years were very difficult for the residents. The cities lacked basic infrastructure and suffered from high rates of alcoholism and poor living conditions. The Mayak plutonium plant dumped nuclear waste in the nearby Techa River, Causing a health crisis not only for the residents of Chelyabinsk 65, but for all of the villages nearby. Conditions at Chelyabinsk 65slash Ozersk would not improve until after the death of Joseph Stalin in 1953. You may remember we talked about the death of Stalin in our episode For Want of a Nail. Owing to the plutonium plant, Chelyabinsk 65 is still one of the most polluted places in the world. Some refer to it as the Graveyard of the Earth. Somehow, though, it's considered a prestigious place to live. When the government polled residents after the Cold War over whether to open the city to the public, they voted to keep it closed. In fact, half of the nuclear scientists said they would refuse to stay if it was opened. As one resident later explained, We take pride in the fact that the state trusts us enough to live and work in Ozersk. In 1991, the Soviet Union officially disbanded and its 15 republics became independent, four of which had nuclear weapons deployed on their territory. This was of great concern to the West, as these newly formed nations didn't have the financial or technological means to properly store and safeguard these weapons. With budgets a fraction of what they had been in the past, the standards of living in the Zatos quickly declined. Security declined as well, as the soldiers who guarded the Zatos also had their wages slashed. With poor employment prospects and limited security, scientists suddenly had the freedom not only to leave their cities, but to leave the country. Fear quickly spread in the United States, that these scientists could help develop nuclear programs in other countries, such as Iran. In 1991, the Nunn-Lugar Act financed the transportation and dismantlement of the scattered nukes to not only reduce the number of nuclear weapons in the world, but to provide the scientists with proper employment. One result of this effort was the International Science and Technology Center in Moscow, which employed many former atomic scientists on non-weapons program and still exists today. If you need to hide a city from your enemies, you'd do well to move it underground. Built in the late 1950s in Wiltshire, England, the massive complex, codenamed Burlington, was designed to safely house up to 4,000 central government personnel in the event of a nuclear strike. In a former Bathstone quarry, the city was to be the site of the Emergency Government War Headquarters, the country's alternative seat of power if the worst happened. Over one kilometer, or about two-thirds of a mile in length, and boasting over 60 miles or 97 kilometers of roads, the underground site was designed not only to accommodate the Prime Minister, the Cabinet Office, civil servants, but also an army of domestic support staff. Blast-proof and completely self-sufficient, the secret underground site could accommodate up to 4,000 people in complete isolation from the outside world for up to three months. Though it was fortunately never used, the grid of roads and avenues ran beneath underground hospitals, canteens, kitchens, warehouses, dormitories, and offices. The city was also equipped with the second-largest telephone exchange in Britain, a BBC studio from which the PM could address the nation, and a pneumatic tube system to relay messages. An underground lake and treatment plant could provide all the water needed. A dozen huge tanks would store the fuel required to keep the generators in the underground power station running. The air within the complex could also be kept at a constant humidity and heated to around 68 degrees Fahrenheit or 20 degrees Celsius. The complex was kept on standby in case of future nuclear threats to the uk until 2005 when the underground reservoir was drained the supplies removed the fuel tanks emptied and the skeleton staff of four were dismissed have you ever wondered what really happened to amelia earhart or the lost colony of roanoke do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books, on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Kat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. While we all take a moment to be grateful that Burlington was never needed, I'm also going to take a second to be grateful to a recent review left through the iTunes slash Apple podcast. Five stars, fun show, from senus 216 Moxie is a great host with an excellent voice for broadcasting, and the show itself is well-researched and enlightening. I highly recommend it. Thanks, senus 216 I'm striving to put forth good information in a way that's enjoyable to listen to. If you've got a few seconds and feel like doing a good deed, it really helps the show if you can leave a review through an Apple product, and it helps other people to find the podcast. Some cities were not secret in their heyday, but have been lost to time until recently. In what's being hailed as a major breakthrough for Mayan archaeology, in February 2018, researchers identified the ruins of more than 60,000 buildings hidden for centuries under the jungles of Guatemala. Using LIDAR, light detection and ranging, scholars digitally removed the tree canopies from aerial images of the area, revealing the ruins of a sprawling pre-Columbian civilization that was far more complex and interconnected than most Maya specialists had supposed. Mounted on a helicopter, The laser continually aims pulses toward the ground below, so many that a large number streak through the spaces between the leaves and branches and are reflected back to the aircraft and registered by a GPS unit. By calculating the precise distances between the airborne laser and the points on the Earth's surface, computer software can generate a three-dimensional digital image of what lies below. And to put the density of this jungle into perspective, archaeologists have been searching that area on foot for years, but had been unable to find a single man-made feature. LIDAR is revolutionizing archaeology the way the Hubble Space Telescope revolutionized astronomy, said Francisco Estrada Belli, a Tulane University archaeologist and National Geographic explorer. We'll need a 100 years to go through all the data and really understand what we're seeing. The project mapped more than 800 square miles, or 2100 square kilometers, of the Maya Biosphere Reserve in the Pétan region of northern Guatemala, producing the largest lidar data set ever obtained for archaeological research. The old school of thought held that Mayan civilization existed only as scattered city-states, But these findings suggest that Central America supported an advanced civilization that was, with as many as 14 million people at its peak around 1200 years ago, comparable in sophistication to cultures like ancient Greece and China. The LIDAR even revealed raised highways connecting the urban centers and complex irrigation and agricultural terracing systems, all of which were made without the use of the wheel or beasts of burden. Despite standing for millennia, these sites are in danger from looting and environmental degradation. Guatemala is losing more than 10% of its forests annually, and habitat loss is accelerated along the border with Mexico as trespassers burn and clear land for agriculture and human settlement. By identifying these sites and helping to understand who these ancient people were, We hope to raise awareness of the value of protecting these places," said Marianne Hernandez, president of the Foundation for Maya Culture and Natural Heritage. LIDAR has also helped scientists to redraw a settlement located on the outskirts of Johannesburg, South Africa. And it tells the beginnings of a fascinating story. Scientists from the University of Witwatersrand Believe the newly discovered city was occupied in the 15th century by Swana speaking people who lived in the northern parts of South Africa. Many similar Swana city states fell during regional wars and forced migration in the 1820s, and there was little oral or physical evidence to prove their existence. Though archaeologists excavated some ancient ruins in the area in the 1960s, they couldn't comprehend the full extent of the settlement. By using LIDAR, the team was able to virtually remove the vegetation and recreate images of the surrounding landscape, allowing them to produce aerial views of the monuments and buildings in a way that couldn't have been imagined a generation ago. Using these new aerial images, they can now estimate that as many as 850 homesteads had once existed in and around the city that they've given the temporary designation of SKBR. It's likely that most homesteads housed several family members, meaning that this was a city with a large population. There are also stone towers outside some homesteads, as high as 8 feet or 2.5 meters, with bases 16 feet or 5 meters wide. Academics believe that these might have been the bases of grain bins or even burial markers for important people. There's also evidence of several refuse dumps, that may evince a certain level of wealth and power in the region. The team estimates they are still another decade or two away from fully understanding the life of the city's inhabitants and how the city came to be, and ceased to be. Modern technology has also helped unearth an ancient city in Cambodia. Constructed around 1150, the palaces and temples of Angkor Wat were, and still are, the biggest religious complex on earth, covering an area four times larger than Vatican City. In the 15th century, the Khmer kings abandoned their city and moved to the coast. They built a new city, Phnom Penh, the modern-day capital of Cambodia. After that, life in Angkor slowly ebbed away. Everything made of wood rotted away. Everything made of stone was reclaimed by the jungle. An international team, led by the University of Sydney's Dr. Damian Evans, was able to map out 230 square miles or 370 square kilometers around Angkor in unprecedented detail in less than two weeks. Rampant illegal logging of valuable hardwood trees had stripped away the primary forest, allowing dense new undergrowth to fill in the gaps. It was unclear whether the lasers could locate enough holes in the canopy to penetrate to the forest floor. Shooting lidar from a helicopter was also the superior method when you consider the prevalence of landmines left over from Cambodia's civil war. The findings were staggering. The archaeologists found undocumented cityscapes etched onto the forest floor, with remnants of boulevards, reservoirs, ponds, dikes, Irrigation canals, agricultural plots, settlement complexes, and orderly rows of temples. They were all clustered around what the archaeologists realized must be a royal palace, a vast structure surrounded by a network of earthen dikes. To suspect that a city is there, somewhere underneath the forest, and then to see the entire structure revealed with such clarity and precision was extraordinary, Evan said. It was amazing. These new discoveries have profoundly transformed our understanding of Angkor, showing it to have been the greatest medieval city on Earth. Most striking of all was evidence of large-scale hydraulic engineering, the defining signature of the Khmer Empire, used to store and distribute seasonal monsoon water with a complex network of canals and reservoirs. Harnessing the monsoon rains provided food security, and made the ruling elite fantastically rich in the process. For the next three centuries they channeled their wealth into the greatest concentration of temples on earth. It would be 700 years before London would reach the same size. Bonus fact, and not to be a pedant, but monsoon refers not to the heavy rains in the rainy season from May to September, but to the strong sustained winds that bring them. Some cities are hidden not for subterfuge or dereliction, but by necessity. If the place you live would politely be described as uninhabitable, say the Australian outback where the summer temperature is 120 degrees Fahrenheit, a viable option is to go underground. Such is the setup of the town of Coober Pedy which sounds like the adorable name your toddler gives the new dog and you just kind of go with it. On the surface, the area looks like a ghost town, with few buildings and many of them abandoned. Most of the 3,500 residents live below the surface in burrowed-out caves. Coober was established in 1915 following the discovery of opals there, which led to a mining boom as people came in search of their fortune. The name Cooberpiti is an anglicized version of the aborigine word Kupapiti, commonly assumed to mean white man in a hole. Among those first comers were soldiers returning from World War One who knew how to dig and live in trenches. The early days were like the gold rush of the Wild West. People who found opal were said to have slept next to their claims with guns to ward off would-be thieves. The boom was followed by a leveling off, with fewer people committing to the financial uncertainty and hardships of that life. An astounding 80% of the world's opals come from this area, but that wealth is nothing to the sun. It doesn't care. It's going to continue with the Mad Max motif. People fought back against this a century ago with dugouts, caves bored into the sandstone hillsides. As bigger, more powerful machinery arrived, the mining, and the homes, went deeper. It may be 115 degrees Fahrenheit or 47 degrees Celsius outside, but it's only 74 Fahrenheit or 23 Celsius underground. The underground town has since expanded and become more sophisticated. It has several hotels and B&Bs, a church, a gift shop, a museum, a casino, and, of course, a pub. Entrances are usually at ground level, and the rooms extend backwards into the hill. All rooms are ventilated with narrow vertical shafts, with wider shafts used to bring in light. You can see the tops of these shafts poking out of the hills everywhere in and around Cooper Peevee. They're the only giveaway to the hundreds of underground homes. The homes are conceptually simple to renovate. Need a bookshelf? Carve one out. Having a baby? Dig out a new nursery. The tunneling machines leave an attractive pattern on the walls, and the sandstone itself has beautiful maroon and rose-colored swirls. So warm and friendly, it's absolutely gorgeous. When the building work is finished, the sandstone is sealed with clear sealer, otherwise an underground home gets rather dusty. Underground cities predate modern mining equipment considerably. Several million years ago, volcanic eruptions spewed layer after layer of ash, called tufa, over modern-day Turkey, which cemented over time into a soft, easily carvable, yet relatively stable rock. Inhabitants of ancient Anatolia realized that they could carve their homes right out of the hillsides and underground. The city of Derinkuyu is one of these many rock-cut dwellings. It is also the deepest at as much as 250 feet, or about 25 stories, underground, with a capacity to house up to 20,000 people. This multi-leveled city contained everything a population would need to survive the invasions that seemed to typify its history. The Cappadocian region had been a valuable trade hub since 2500 BCE, Many tribes, and later large governments, aspired to control Anatolia, leading to millennia of invasion and conquest by different groups. Residents continued to use the underground city as a refuge into the 20th century. The exact age of Derinkuyu and who built it are uncertain. The earliest known mention in writing of underground cities in the Cappadocian Kingdom comes from a Greek historian soldier named Xenophon, In 370 BCE. In his work Anabis, he says The houses here were underground, with a mouth like that of a well, but spacious below, and while entrances were tunneled down for the beasts of burden, the human inhabitants descended by a ladder. Within the enormous eighteen levels of the city, only eight of which are currently accessible, Researchers found kitchens, bedrooms, bathrooms, food storage, oil and wine presses, weapons storage, temples, schools, tombs, and stables. There were also large spaces that might have been ideal for community meetings. More than 50 ventilation shafts brought in fresh air from above, while thousands of smaller ducts distributed that air throughout the city. Some archaeologists believe that a 12-mile or 8-kilometer-long passageway connected Derinkuyu to another underground city, suggesting some degree of cooperation between the various civilizations of the Cappadocia region. The city of Derinkuyu was designed as a refuge. Their doors were large disks of stone that covered the entrances and passages during raids. Because the doors only opened and closed from the inside, the inhabitants within the complex had complete control. Holes in the middle of the door may have allowed archers to shoot out. Each level connected to the next level by a hallway with a similar stone door. Narrow passages forced people to go through single file, making it easier to defend against incoming soldiers. The underground city had a water containment system that also took safety into consideration. It appears that one of the main ventilation shafts also served as a large well. However, the wells within the city do not link together, nor do they go all the way to the surface, which protected the inhabitants from invaders who might think to poison the entire water system from the outside. And all of that as much as 3,000 years before the first blueprint was ever printed. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. There's no telling how many more ancient cities have been reclaimed by nature and are waiting to be discovered. Or how many secret mid-century cities have yet to be open to the public? As a personal bonus, writing today's episode reminded me of an obscure cartoon from the early 80s called Mysterious Cities of Gold. If you remember that, give me an enthusiastic wave on our social media, facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts or instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Or let me know if there's a secret city you were really hoping to hear me talk about. And thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word clot. Clot. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.